the government's been hiding this the whole time. I knew we'd find it. Who are you? I'm Agent Keith. I'm your new partner. They figured since you guys have been away for a while, you might need some help getting back into the swing of things. I'm sorry, but we've been doing this for a long time. Is there a payphone here? People can find anybody anywhere all the time now. Have you ever heard of the internet? The internet. They're not going to shut us down this time. The whole world is going to know. Connect. <laughs> From January 2016, an older Mulder and Scully step into a brave new world with little assist from Agent Keith a.k.a. Jimmy Kimmel, in a spoof from Jimmy Kimmel Live, which aired about a week or so before the six-season Episode 10 X-Files series return. Uh, season 11 is in the works, and no, we promise this somewhat nutty opening will make sense in a moment. But in the meantime, on to, let's say, more erudite matters. A thematic conceit which runs through Michael Crichton's 1995 Jurassic Park sequel novel, The Lost World, is the notion of the edge of chaos. Not something which most people haven't realized on their own, or at least learned about in junior high school biology class. It posits the notion that if an organism remains in too stagnant a state for too long, it will decay and eventually die because it needs to grow and change and become stronger, and it needs to be encouraged to do so via some kind of physiological challenge be it the need to combat a virus, build up a resistance to an environmental climate change, encounter with a more predatory species, or whatever. But it also makes it clear that too much change all at once will also kill a species off before it has the chance to become stronger and adapt. Hence, life evolves most efficiently and healthily in that yin-yang state between too much and not enough. Now, if the film industry, the art and craft of film, as it were, is a living entity, and we most assuredly believe it is, then it too lives on that cutting edge of chaos. And sometimes it's that ever-controversial and often damn near irritating edge between commerciality and genuine art. Now, if ever there was anything more representative of the chaos between filmic art and commerce, it's the dreaded, (laughs) dirty word coming up here, franchise. (laughs) After striking... Cinematic gold with one title, this endless strip mining for that same vein of gold was once referred to by legendary screenwriter and novelist Wayne Goldman as a whore's endeavor. But hey, every now and then there are stories where the whore actually finds true unbridled love for the first time. And for us, one of the great artistic pretty woman-like offshoots of the movie franchise is how sometimes a series of films can become so popular that one actor may perform a character over the course of their career for so long, sometimes decades, that we as an audience get to not only watch them grow and grow older and change physically, emotionally, and otherwise, but we grow up and grow older and change physically, emotionally, and otherwise with them over those same decades. To be a child, when you first encountered a film of characters such as Rocky, Han Solo, or Mr. Spock, uh, to touch base with them every few years as a teenager, then into college, then to maybe even take your own children to see a new film with that same character dealing with their children and the responsibilities of unexpected trials, traumas, and foibles of aging, 
is a magically unique experience which, face it, in recent films like The Force Awakens and Creed, have led to some truly seismic emotional events within the hearts, within the very souls of audiences who grew up with everyone's favorite intergalactic smuggler or never-say-die underdog heavyweight fighter. Uh, And tonight we're going to do a nifty little retrospect covering five such cinematic icons whom we personally latched on to while growing up and who uh, we personally very much now relate to as we grow older. Well, technically four characters and one couple who not only were born of and from the form leads to function nature of the commercial film franchise, but who also, by a combination of the actors loving those characters so much and writers and directors who also had such fondness for them, managed to supersede the often lame-ass returning to the well too many times scenario to create truly special cinematic icons whom we'll embrace forever. I'm Craig Jameson of Gull Cottage Online. And I'm Jim Delaney of TheLunchMovie.com, and welcome to an all-new installment of The Movie Sneak. The Edge of Chaos. Growing up and growing older with our favorite film icons. See? Told you the Mulder and Scully getting older thing would make sense. It's not the worst quality in the world. Keep your arms above the surface. When the kid comes back, grab on. Indy, he... He's a good kid, Mary, and you should get off his back about school. But, I mean... Not everybody's cut out for it. His name is Henry. Henry, good name. He's your son. My son? Henry Jones III. Why the hell didn't you make him finish school? Welcome back to the Movie Sneak, and Jim, it's great to be recording with you again. It's been a few months since our last installment, which consisted of our first annual Cheapy Bin Awards. Well, we're during award season, we attempted to bring to the attention of our listeners a few smaller and or lesser known filmic buried treasures, which may have in the past received short rift, but which interested viewers could definitely seek out in their local <laughs> supermarket, Target, Best Buy, or Walmart $3 Cheapy Bins, or even find for free these days on cable on demand. And yeah, that longish gap between episodes was ultimately for very good reasons, as we've both been involved in numerous steps forward in our filmic and teaching and screenwriting careers, which anyone interested can catch up on via either our websites or our personal Facebook pages. And links to them will be provided at the bottom of this show's page on Art19. 
We're not going to bog you down, however, with all that info here and now. <laughs> uh-uh, because we want to get right in tonight, into tonight's broadcast, which also includes our musical guest and fellow April 11th birthday sharer, Go Aries, composer Edwin Wendler. <laughs> uh, taking the film music industry by storm over the last decade, Edwin has been featured as an orchestrator, arranger on former Tangerine Dream member Paul Hassinger's Teristas and Sleeper Cell, the Little Fockers, and an orchestrator, additional composer on John Ottman's Nonstop, X-Men Days of Future Past, X-Men Apocalypse, and The Nice Guys. He impressing the hell out of many with a multi-musical genre ear and execution uh, in an industry which some claim has in recent years fallen into a rut of terrible oral sameness. We've got a couple of tracks from a couple of Edwin's solo films, along with a short conversation with the young maestro, which we think will bowl you over every bit as much as we've been. We're also introducing a new rendition of our Can You Dig It segment, but instead of boring old movie reviews, which you can get anywhere, we're paying tribute and giving voice to a new generation of cinematic movers and shakers determined to make inroads in and alter the course of the film industry as we know it. And tonight we begin with the remarkable Stacey Lane Wilson. An industry multi-hyphenate if ever there was one, Stacey's a well-known journalist and on-camera interviewer whose work has been featured with Dread Central, Fangoria, and Yahoo TV. She's the author of the short story collection Sex, Death, Rock and Roll with Darren Smith, the books Ghost Writer, Dark Lullaby, and her newest bestseller, So L.A., a Hollywood memoir, which details the topsy-turvy life of herself, her mother, famous Hollywood journalist and pinup model Nancy Bacon, and her father, the Ventures legendary instrumental guitarist Don Wilson. And she's the acclaimed screenwriter, director of Among Numerous Titles, the soon-to-be-released pinups versus Zombie Smackdown, Fetish Factory, the De Palma-esque short film homage, Psychotherapy, now making the festival rounds, and an upcoming, title presently secret, follow-up to a classic 80s-era horror film fave. Oh, and perhaps at the top of that list, she's presently writer-producer-director of an upcoming documentary about her father's group, The Ventures, uh, the all-time best-selling instrumental rock group ever, whose hits include the 60s-era rock guitar classics Wipeout, Walk Don't Run, the hit rock version of the themed Hawaii Five-O, and Surf Rider, now known to many as the theme to Pulp Fiction. Just a couple of titles you may have heard before. So, without further ado... Let's get this bad boy in gear. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? You're a psychiatrist, for God's sakes. If you don't know why men cheat, then who does? And I'm a man. I know. We're almost out of time. Come on. Just tell me, hypothetically, why you cheated on your wife. Tell me, and I'll be good. I'll even take my pills. Okay. I'm gonna do this just this one time. (gasps) Thank you, Doctor. A clip from the character thriller short, Psychotherapy, presently making the film festival rounds, and written and directed by our special guest, book and screenwriter, film journalist, TV personality, documentarian, memoirist, and director, Stacey Lane Wilson. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Stacey, on The Movie Sneak. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me on. 
or rather thanks for joining us again as we actually recorded an interview a day prior. But as can sometimes happen, a glitch caused us to lose a substantial part of it. <laughs> so thanks for re-enlisting, as it were. No problem. You know, that's a take two, right? <laughs> exactly. There you go. So, uh, the book, So L.A., um, how did that come to pass? Uh, well, my book uh, is sort of the culmination of my uh, parents' experiences coming to Los Angeles as a musician and a model and a gossip columnist. Um, so they had a really interesting experiences in the uh, 1960s in L.A., um, sort of at the end of Hollywood's golden era. And then, lo and behold, they met and I was born. <laughs> and so uh, then I had an interesting upbringing, of course, with two parents like that, with the, you know, they're quite, quite the characters. Uh, and then growing up in Los Angeles in the 70s and coming of age in the 80s with the hair metal bands on the Sunset Strip and whatnot. So the book is not only a memoir, but it's also a parallel history of what was going on in Los Angeles with the uh, music and movie culture and the landmarks and, and the history of it in that time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what's what's next uh, on the horizon? If, um, as if life is perfectly <laughs> planned, but... Uh... In addition to being a writer, I'm also a filmmaker, and so my next big project is uh, going to be a documentary about the Ventures, which is my dad's group. As I said, he is a musician, and he started the Ventures in um, Washington State in the late 1950s and then moved uh, to L.A. in the 60s, but they had their first hit. I believe it was in 1959 with Walk, Don't Run. Or it was 1960. They recorded it in 59. Mm. And they've had hits with Hawaii Five-0 and Pipeline and Wipeout and uh, 2000 Very Pound cool e, stuff. Which was, yeah, actually played at, uh, at John Belushi's funeral. He requested that that be played. So that story is oh, wow. going to be in the movie as well. Yeah, some really interesting trivia and a lot of history also surrounding the ventures. So I'm really excited about... Um, making the first ever documentary about them. So we have a crowdfunding Sweet. site right now at Indiegogo, but also a, a Facebook page and stuff. So we have a lot of really great musicians and celebrities already signed on to talk about the ventures. So that's, um, you know, a really huge undertaking, but I'm super excited about it. As well you should be. And, and I got to say that, um, <laughs> and you've probably heard this a bazillion times, but... Uh, Depending on the lighting, depending on the angle, you look like alternately your mother's clone. <laughs> at, <laughs> well, thank at you. That Since age. my mom was a pinup model, I certainly can't complain I'm about taking that. Taking as a compliment. compliment. <laughs> and there are times where I've actually said, "My God, you look just like your dad." I mean, <laughs> right, duh. Well, obviously, genetics, but um, right, yeah, it's just pretty, pretty fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 Hollywood. Some call it the boulevard of broken dreams and broken hearts. Some call it home. Welcome to the Fetish Factory, where all of your fantasies come true, and so do your worst nightmares. Meet the beautiful girls, Betty, Jane, Rosie, Tristan, and Susie. And now, meet the zombies. At the Fetish Factory, it's survival of the foxiest. Yeah! Carrie Keegan, Chase Williamson, and Jennifer Block. 
rid of them. <laughs> All right, now, here we go. Uh, now, you are, in addition to being an, an interviewer and a uh, columnist, uh, journalist, novelist, uh, uh, biographer, um, you're also a screenwriter and director. And uh, That's true. Could you uh, give us a little heads up on what you've been involved in lately and what's coming up next? Uh, yeah, well, right now I'm sort of uh, touring the the festival circuit with uh, Psychotherapy, which is a short film that um, Brooke Lewis produced and stars in, and she's well-known in the horror community, and um, so is her counterpart in the film, uh, Ricky Dean Logan, who was in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy's Dead, and um, Back to the Future, and just tons of other stuff. It seems like every time I turn on the TV, in, right down to uh, reruns of Seinfeld, he's on it, so people will <laughs> recognize both actors which is always a plus and they're both really really good in it and it's sort of uh brooke had asked me to write this part for her to show that she could do some dramatic acting because she's known for her comedic you know side and it's sort of our homage to brian de palma because we both love brian de palma so i kind of wrote a short uh, um two-hander which is uh uh, like dress to kill, you know, there's a psychiatrist and an unhinged patient going head to head in the shorts. So that's what that's all about. And then my other upcoming project, which uh, just got picked up for distribution is the first feature that I wrote and directed and it's called Fetish Factory. And it's produced by Blanc Bean, which is Michael Bean's production company, along with his wife, Jennifer Blanc, and she stars in the film. And um, it's a post-apocalyptic Zomcom set in Hollywood, <laughs> so it's very goofy. It's kind of a, a throwback to the grindhouse days, you know, just meant to be uh, fun and enjoyable, quick, sh- quick fix entertainment. And we have a really great ensemble cast in that with uh, beautiful burlesque dancers and bloodthirsty zombies, and uh, you just you know, you can't go wrong with all those elements, can you? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. That's the plan. So, yeah, so I'm really excited about that coming out, and that should be out sometime this year. Okay, so backtracking into the book, So L.A., and connecting it to the two new films. Um, in the book, you mention a couple of neat little pun chapter-type uh, uh, chapter titles. They remind me of very Raymond Chandler-esque, very Ian Fleming-esque. And uh, you also make a couple of <laughs> neat pop culture references uh, to say fembots. <laughs> hey, I kind of wonder, do you think... I definitely think your book will appeal to a younger generation, not making us sound like Clint Eastwood get off my lawn, <laughs> older people. But um do you think that younger generations will catch some of those references, uh, some of those little sly uh, in jokes here and there? Uh, well, my kind of my hope is that they would be somewhat like myself when I was the younger generation because I was curious to learn. I always wanted to to know more, so that hopefully would motivate people that may not catch some of the references. Although, um, on the other hand, I did do. Um, due diligence when I was writing the book I had sent it out to a few different beta readers from different uh, ages different areas different demographics so one of my readers was a 20 something year old woman living in 
um, England, and she's never been to Los Angeles. So that was actually really helpful to get feedback from people of all different kind of ages and backgrounds to make sure that it was still readable. But I do hope that, you know, if someone doesn't understand something, that they'll be curious and want to learn Mm -hmm. more about it and look it up and learn something. Yeah. I could definitely see that. Now, the second idea, uh, dovetailing with that first idea, and uh, it actually references uh, your film Fetish Factory. And, um, okay, how to put this? Um, There are certain movies that I refer to as 19th and Chestnut movies in reference to this big, huge movie palace that used to be at 19th and Chestnut Street in Philadelphia uh, years ago. They did plays there. They had world premieres there. And uh, in its last... 20 or so years, it turned into an inner city theater, which, and before IMAX, this thing had an IMAX size screen, and it had balconies and chandeliers, and it could fit hundreds of people, thousand people. And I saw everything from big budget studio films like The Empire Strikes Back, Temple of Doom, and The Living Daylights, to really great horror films like The Serpent and the Rainbow, uh, Psycho, uh, I'm sorry, Psycho 2, and um, Child's Play 2. And interestingly, Something like Child's Play 2, while it's not a great film, it's probably one of the most enjoyable times I ever had at the movies because of the audience reaction. (laughs) So to this day, there are certain films I think of as 19th and Chestnut movies where (laughs) the audience reaction is part of the fun. Now, Fetish Factory seems like... I don't think there's a lot of people who can pull off the tone between horror and humor. Obviously, Sam Raimi does it great in, like, Army of Darkness. Um, there's a certain iconoclastic humor. Um, we see it in um, uh, Bubba Hotep and films like that. Some films, like the recent Tom Cruise, The Mummy, look like it wanted to have that iconoclastic humor, but it didn't quite work. So I'm sitting there thinking, eh, you just need to play this straight. Your film, Fetish Factory, you have to have a certain, and I say this in the greatest complimentary way, you certain kind of have, you have to have a certain creative head fucked mental state <laughs> to make that kind of thing work. And from the tone of your book, So LA, from the tone of your short, uh, Psychotherapy, and even though I have yet, not yet seen Fetish Factory, just from its premise and from what I hear about it from you, you seem to have a certain era's uh, I thought Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino caught it, like the, that lightning in a bottle in Grindhouse. You seem to have that same mental state. I'm curious as to where the hell did you get it? <laughs> because it is very elusive. Not everyone has it. Not everyone making films has it. Uh, oh, I don't know. It's probably just, you know, from the, the era in which I grew up and, and all of the different uh areas of pop culture that I've been exposed to throughout my life and just having um, parents with a great sense of humor, but they also (laughs) loved horror movies too. So maybe it was just kind of a a gumbo of all of that. Um, But yeah, I mean, I hope so. I do feel like I am a little bit out of time. If only I could have been around in, you know, the early 1970s making movies with Roger Corman, you know, I mean, that would have Uh been, uh that would have been my thing, but I'm I'm a little late to that party. So I'm just (laughs) trying to make up for it as best I can and enjoying every step of the way. Now, seeing as those 19th and Chestnut theaters don't, for all intents and purposes, don't really exist too much anymore. You have revival houses and such, but, um, you know, no theater. I mean, nowadays you go to the movies, you sit down, and if somebody utters a peep, the people around them get pissed. Um, Mm -hmm. Back then, you know, you would 
go down into the bathroom to, for me, you know, you go to go to the bathroom and come back with a contact high because everybody was blunting up down in the bathroom. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, um, people would yell at Conan and uh, like when William Shatner was swimming in um, Star Trek, the voyage home, trying to rescue the whale from drowning. Somebody shouted out, oh, my God, it's Shelley Winters, you know, in reference to his punch, right. <laughs> you yeah. know, and swimming that underwater. That happens sometimes, yeah, at our Grindhouse Revival Theaters. But um, I have to say the West Coast audience is a bit different. We don't really shout back at the screen. Um, it's not the same. It's not really the okay. same. We're more laid back. But, uh, but, you know, I mean, as far as Fetish Factory goes, um, it is is poised for a couple of festivals, but it's really, it's going, it's already been um, picked up for distribution and it will be streaming and on DVD, which is a little Mm -hmm. bit of a shame. I mean, of course, I'm glad it's getting out there, but it is absolutely Mm -hmm. an audience movie. Um, So watching it home alone is kind of like watching Rocky Horror home alone. I mean, you still might enjoy it, but it's, it really is um, a crowd film. So I do hope to be able to see it with audiences at some mm-hmm. festivals just to have that experience. Definitely looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks. Cool. Okay. For more information on Stacy's books, including So LA, films, including Fetish Factory and Psychotherapy, and Adventures Documentary, as well as the Indiegogo page to get behind and support it, see the accompanying links on our Movie Sneak page on the Art19 Network, on Blog Talk Radio, and the Movie Sneak podcast page at the Gull Cottage Sandlot website, accessible at gullcottageonline.com. Can you dig it? Coming up, we dive into a chat with film composer Edwin Wendler and our examination of The Edge of Chaos, Growing Up and Growing Older with our favorite film icons. Keep it tuned, as they used to say, to the movie sneak. We'll be right back. James T. Kirk. Excuse me? How did you find me? How did you know my name? I have been and always shall be your friend. (laughs) Uh, Look, uh, I I don't know you. I am Spock. Bullshit. Sneak is honored to present composer Edwin Wendler with the track The Initiative from director Cassie J's award-winning 2012 documentary The Right to Love an American Family.
an alternately heart-rending and uplifting documentary about one family's struggle for marriage equality, The Right to Love from director Cassie J, and scored by Edwin Wendler, is presently available at the free streaming documentary outlet snagfilms.com. Run by the same folks who give us IndieWire, Snag Films' voluminous documentary catalog is now available on YouTube, as well as in certain markets on Hulu and other outlets. Oh, and for those who have Comcast, YouTube, along with Snag Films' catalog on YouTube, is now available through the Xfinity One app. So uh, take a look at this remarkable docu, which is considerably emotionally aided, abetted, and uplifted by young Maestro Wendler's remarkable score. We have another sampling of Edwin's, and now for something completely different, musical talents a little later in the show, including a grand-scale Zimmer-Williams-esque piece and a more funkified 80s-90s-era rock-inspired bit. That along with a nifty little chat with the composer. All this coming up a little down the line. Not a bad bit of rescuing, huh? You know, sometimes I amaze even myself. That doesn't sound too hard. They let us go. It's the only explanation for the ease of our escape. Easy? You call that easy? They're tracking us. Not this ship, sister. At least the information in R2 is still intact. What's so important? What's he carrying? The technical readouts of that battle station. I only hope that when the data's analyzed, a weakness can be found. It's not over yet. It is for me, sister. Look, I ain't in this for your revolution, and I'm not in it for you, princess. I expect to be well paid. I'm in it for the money. You needn't worry about your reward. If money is all that you love, then that's what you'll receive. Your friend is quite a mercenary. I wonder if he really cares about anything. Or anybody. For those um, who may be wondering, uh, during the course of this show, like we said earlier, we're going to be doing uh, four characters and one couple. Some people might say, with the exception of that one couple, or half of that couple, uh, how come you don't have any women mentioned as people who influenced you while growing up? Well, we thought about that while putting the show together, and mainly because, um, I mean, we grew up as guys, and um, especially if you, for a period of time, grew up with a single mom, such as myself... Uh, a lot of times, and everyone does this to a certain degree, you look toward film, uh, consciously or unconsciously, for an example of uh, what it means to be an adult, and I guess in our case, what it means to be a young man. So if you start growing up with characters uh, in, in puberty, and if you follow them from your high school years and college years, then into adulthood, as a guy, generally speaking, you're going to be following those guy characters. You know, if... Um, for example, like with a Han Solo type of character who we first was in, we were first introduced to back in 1977, uh, he starts as a rogue, selfish, looking for the bucks, looking for the babes kind of guy. But by the time we see him for the last time, a couple of years ago in The Force Awakens, he's a father. So during the course of his cinematic lifespan, we've watched him open up. We've watched him learn how to be responsible, how to become a part of and take in a family, all that kind of stuff from a guy's point of view. So not to say that there aren't women characters who aren't like that. Obviously, there's Princess General Leia at the top of that list. But uh, for us, you know, we're focusing on uh, just the guys who influenced us as young men. And uh, I've already talked to one or two people about maybe later down the line doing another version of this show where we get into women women characters from a woman's point of view who may have influenced them growing up and also 
even more ethnic characters. I mean, Jim and I talked about John Shaft. And the only reason he's not a part of this show is because the Shaft films, as great as they were, and as much as I enjoyed them growing up, um, there were only really three films in a short-lived TV series within a space of like four or five years. So the char- And then he, Richard Roundtree shows up again as that character in the John Singleton version uh, of the film. But he really wasn't around during all those intervening decades for us to refer back to. I mean, nowadays, I'm kind of envious of a whole new generation who have... Uh, gay characters, such as the characters in Will and Grace, that they were able to grow up with over uh, a decade and more and return to in a new upcoming series. Uh, same thing with female characters in shows like Gilmore Girls, and we're still picking up more with those characters. And even though I grew up with uh, ethnic comic book characters like Black Panther, The Falcon, and Storm when I was a kid, um, nowadays you have a whole generation of kids who can grow up with the filmic versions of those characters uh, who have been around for years and will be around for more years to come as Marvel keeps cranking out more of their various Phase 2 and Phase 3 films and what have you. So, we just wanted to address that right up front for those who were wondering, why did you leave out this and why did you leave out that? Uh, hopefully, in a later show, we'll be able to get into those more specifically. But this is those characters who influenced us as young men and kind of helped us tune in to what it means or meant to be a young man growing up when we did. And you know, to those to those recent Marvel movies and the the more recent characters, uh, one of the things we're not doing we're not focusing on say characters like James Bond, where multiple people have played exactly. Him. Now, while we have more recurring characters these days, Spider Man's had three people in fifteen years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, so I mean, you, you, while there are you, while there is even like more character consistency these days, uh, it still points to the 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 how rare it is for a single actor or actress to play a single character over a long time. And it, it seems, yeah, we're on a cusp of more and more of that, but um, there just isn't a dearth of it at the moment, is there? Exactly. Uh, in fact, where this idea first um, came to mind was uh, I was watching a little mini-documentary on Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan and where producer Harv Bennett was uh, figuring out how he would broach the idea to William Shatner that Kirk isn't just a intergalactic stud anymore, but that he's an older man. <laughs> he said, you know, you kind of remind me to a certain degree of Spencer Tracy and how there, were, there have been certain actors that we've watched grow into old age and they age gracefully. And that aging gracefully was a part of what made them appealing to us as an audience. And then there are other actors who have refused to grow older and kind of look like fools. And he felt that if Shatner could embrace that Spencer Tracy-esque quality of growing older gracefully, that the audience would like the character even more. And I thought he was right. Yeah, it's the mm-hmm. right decision. Yep. And so that's kind of where this was born. Sure. And the whole idea is not to focus on characters that have been around for a long time in film, like James Bond or Tarzan or Zorro or Superman or Spider-Man or Sherlock Holmes, because they've all been played by so many different actors. The whole idea is to focus on a single character over decades and how we watch that character and that actor together grow older and we watch them change and we grow older and change with them. So that's where the angle that we're uh, definitely uh, coming at on this. Very good point, Jim. Very good. Goodness! Han Solo! 
It is I, C-3PO. You probably don't recognize me because of the red arm. Look who it is. Did you see who... Uh, uh, oh. Excuse me, Prince... General, sorry. Come along, BB-8, quickly. Yes, I must get my proper arm reinstalled. You change your hair. Same jacket. No, new jacket. I saw him. Leia, I saw her son. He was here. You know what? The first time I saw Han Solo, and I don't mean just the first scene, practically the whole first time I saw Star Wars, I didn't like him that much. Mm-hmm. I thought he was a show-off. I thought he was a blowhard. I, I tolerated him because of Chewie. <laughs> I really loved it. I was, I was seven years old, and here's a dog with a gun. Right? <laughs> Chewbacca was the coolest thing I'd ever seen, and Han Solo was just this guy that like speaks for him since Chewie doesn't you know speak in a language we can understand. Um, so yeah, Han, Han, you know, he, Han grew mm-hmm. on me. Um, uh, which is totally opposite from my my first reaction to Indiana Jones, but um, yeah, overall he didn't he didn't really grab me versus Indiana Jones. The very first time we see him, I felt like I was eleven, and I felt like this is the hero I've been waiting for my entire life. Mm. You know, I'd seen the movies my dad grew up on, or as many of them as he could have shown us. You know, on the way we would just watch old movies on UHF mm-hmm. channels in the seventies, right? But but the first time. Somebody tries to sh- put a bullet in his back, and he hears the gun, and he steps out of the shadows, and we see his eyes for the first time. I just felt like this guy is in control of everything, and no one's ever seen him yet, so we don't know what's going to happen next. It's not like Zorro or or every Humphrey Bogart movie my dad wanted to show me. Like, there's no, I, I, the, it's a blank check. He can do whatever he wants with it, but he's in control of stuff. Versus Han Solo, I was like, this guy doesn't care about anything until, you know, the end of the movie, then I wasn't mm-hmm. sure. But, I mean, my initial gut reaction to Han Solo was negative, and my initial gut reaction to Indiana Jones was immensely positive. Okay. And uh, as the years went on, and you got older, and those characters got older, right. um, what was the turn of events in their character that maybe caught you off guard and then um, kind of influence your view of the character today uh, you know funny thing for both for both it was in the second movie hmm. uh, for me the the big surprise I didn't I didn't expect Han to I mean I knew Han was gonna be flirty mm-hmm. with Leia, but I didn't expect him to actually kind of pretty much basically fall in hmm. love with her uh, it wasn't just that first kiss it was also you know, I mean, you and I have talked about this, I think, on other shows. The, the, the first time Han gets encased in carbonite, spoiler. Yeah, really. Um, I, I, I mean, at, at 11 years old, or 10 years old I was, uh, even Money Bet then, we thought he was dead. He sure as hell looked dead. I mean, and, or if not dead, he, he looked in immense pain, which I'd never really seen <laughs> that in a hero before. Uh, and and aside from that, like, I, I could feel my voice choking up, rethinking this from 40 years later. Um his the way he handles the way Han, not Harrison, the way Han Solo handles that moment, uh, calming Chewie down, telling him to take care of Leia, right? And then the last thing that he and Leia say to each other right before he goes in, which is one of the for me one of the greatest, probably mm-hmm. the greatest moment in the whole damn series, and it was right. Um, that that to me just 
spun Han Solo in a whole new direction, and basically the direction that you know mm-hmm. pretty much built the expanded universe for him, right? Like the, the whole the whole characterization of him in the expanded universe for anybody who follows that seem more based on who the man he becomes in that moment and everything after than on mm-hmm. our impression of him from the first film. Uh, and Indy, contrarily, well, not contrarily, yeah, well, <laughs> it was a moment in in uh, Temple of Doom. When he's fighting with mm-hmm. Molaram on the ladder in the end, on the rope ladder, and he, they're punching each other back and forth, and he tells Molaram, you offend Shiva. That that line mm-hmm. just stuck in me. I was like, wait a minute. He doesn't believe in this faith. But as an archaeologist, he respects this faith enough to understand its power, and he's telling his this villain, hey, you, you're a mm-hmm. goddamn blasphemer. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't have to believe mm-hmm. in your faith. You're supposed to believe mm-hmm. in this faith, and you're a liar, and I'm going to kill you for it, right? And then, and that, that, that realization took me back to Raiders and realized he doesn't really call himself a particular Christian either, and we get to see that the way he and his dad handle each other in the third movie. But, and that, that, that realization, you offend Shiva, made me realize part of the thing I love about Indiana Jones is he's basically an agnostic who keeps being confronted mm-hmm. by proof of faith. Um, and as somebody who struggled with agnosticism myself, that made who struggled with pretty much reconciled to that that made Indy that much more uh, important to me. That like here's a guy who who wants to believe and who's sort of fascinated in believing, can't quite make the leap of faith, but yet keeps being confronted by eh, this, <laughs> this supernatural stuff. This may be real. Remember the last time we had a quiet drink? Huh? I had a milkshake. Yeah. What did we talk about? We didn't talk. We never talked. Do I detect a rebuke? A regret. It was just the two of us, Dad. It was a lonely way to grow up. For you, too. If you'd been an ordinary, average father, like the other guys' dads, you'd have understood that. Actually, I was a wonderful father. Did I ever tell you to eat up, go to bed, wash your ears, do your homework? No, I respected your privacy, and I taught you self-reliance. What you taught me was that I was less important to you than people who'd been dead for 500 years in another country. And I learned it so well that we've hardly spoken for 20 years. You left just when you were becoming interesting. Did you feel like they were, I mean, did you see a parody between Indy and Han, or did you see him just sort of differently the way I did? I, okay, well, well, for me, my very first reaction uh, for both characters, and this is simply because I'm a few years older than you are. Right. So I was a little older. I was like a, a teenager, uh, you know, a, a little older when I first saw uh, both uh, Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark. So to me, my first reaction was, this guy's a badass, Han and Indy. <laughs> uh, I'm not that cool. I want to be, and I think maybe I can be. <laughs> I just need to be more confident and continue to not care what others think about me. You know, um, I mean, uh, growing up, you know, we lived in some dicey neighborhoods and they moved to the suburbs. And, and no matter where you are, good neighborhood or bad neighborhood, there's this peer pressure thing. And as far as sports went, um, eh, I was pretty good at volleyball and soccer and stuff, uh, but not so great at American baseball, football, uh, basketball. 
So at an early age, I was always interested in like, you know, writing and illustrating and stuff like that in movies and music. And so at an early age, I was able to say, oh, the hell with it. I'm just going to go run run and do what my passion is, which is writing and illustration. And of course, some people would assume this was the, you know, forgive my language here, but this was what they said back in the day. Very faggoty, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, and, absolutely. I remember that. Yeah, you know, sure. and, you, and I had to stand up and prove, no, this isn't so. And just by sticking with what I dug. And part of the reason I dug it is because when I saw characters like Han Solo in Indiana Jones, and like as a kid, I always wanted to be an archaeologist growing up and, and a stuntman. So, geez, mm-hmm. you know, yep. Indiana Jones is kind of putting the two together. Sure. And um, seeing those two characters kind of legitimized what I always enjoyed and almost kind of envisioned yourself as being when I got older. So just seeing that kind of character on screen made me say to myself, hey, I'm not crazy. You know, I want to be like that. I think I can, and obviously I'm not a Han Solo or Indiana Jones, but just the idea of being interested in something and being really good at it, you know. Um, so that, uh, you know, for me, was like I said, those characters kind of legitimized it for me. Now, as far as the surprising turn that the characters would take, there's a guy named Douglas Brody. He's written a number of books about movies, about 40 of them. And he wrote this book uh, around the time of the release of Schindler's List uh, called The Films of Steven Spielberg. And he gets into how, of course, uh, Spielberg's parents separated when he was younger, how he was raised by a single mom for a certain period of time. And he goes into, which I love, and I think this is probably the most telling aspect of Spielberg's career, how probably his most malign film of all, uh, no, not 1941, uh, but Hook, Hmm. is probably the most important film of his career as far as his uh, maturing, as far as his uh, growing uh, as a director. Uh, what I like to refer to as his fulcrum shift film. And we talked about this before. It was right around the time that Spielberg himself started having kids. Um, he had you know, been married to Amy Irving. And they had divorced. He remarried, you know, Kate Capshaw. They had a few more kids, adopted a bunch of kids. And in essence, he was the pan character, the adult who, in a certain degree, had to grow up now, but still try to maintain the kid part. And Hook is a film where... The kid finally, Peter finally becomes a father and reconciles that, those two together. And every single Spielberg film, pretty much, that he was involved in before Hook, the men are all reactionary. And a lot of the characters in those stories, the strong characters, the characters that move the narrative are often the women characters. You see that in Poltergeist. You see that in the Sugarland Express. And the men are usually reactionary, like Richard Dreyfuss in Close Encounters. Even uh, 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 the, the three men in Jaws, uh, the character Dennis Weaver in Duel. Yeah. Uh, after Hook, every single solitary film that Spielberg has done, uh, I can't think of one where it isn't so. You know, there might be one or two in there. I have to go over my list, uh, my mental Rolodex. But every single one is about parents and, and, and their children. I mean, even more specifically, about fathers and sons. Mm-hmm. It's in Minority Report. It's in, <clears throat> excuse me, um, uh, it's in War of the Worlds. It's in the second two Indiana Jones films. Right. Those are about fathers right. and sons. Um, you see it in uh, The Lost World. That's about fathers and their children. Uh, even something like... Um, Catch Me If You Can is about sur- uh, an actual father and son, Christopher Walken and Leonardo DiCaprio, and then the surrogate father-son relationship between Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio. Even a movie like Amistad is the men who seize the ship and set the course of the narrative of the story because they feel as though their ancestors are watching them and they have to 
rise up and take responsibility for the future of their children. So you certainly see it in the Indiana Jones character. And obviously we see it in a Han Solo character too, which is not a Spielberg character, but, you know, the whole Lucas and Spielberg, young dreamers, eventually becoming family men Mm -hmm. thing. So for me, the surprising turn is when both Han and Indy kind of become fathers, you know, and they kind of become selfless or more selfless, we'll say, (laughs) you know, and uh, uh, where we get to the point and another spoiler coming here. I mean, if you haven't seen The Force Awakens by now, to hell with you. It's been around for a few years. Uh, But where we get to the point where Han Solo was actually willing to sacrifice his life Mm -hmm. in the hope that it can help bring his son back from the dark side, help redeem the soul of his son. Yes, yes. We have uh, Indy and the relationship with his father in the third film, and then Indy in a relationship with his son in the fourth film. So for me, that was a surprising turn. And I've since, I don't have any children of my own. I have nephews. So to a certain degree, I get to experience this. But I know people, you know, friends who they went and saw the original Star Wars films with their dad, and now they're taking their sons to go see The Force Awakens, took their sons to see The Force Awakens. And to me, that's just a remarkable thing that is uh, incredibly unique in film history. The girl said you wanted to talk about something? Yeah, I want to talk to you about training me. Training? (laughs) I don't do that stuff no more. Sorry about that. Listen, it's getting kind of late, kid, so I'm going to close up. How good was he? Apollo? Yeah, he's great. He's a perfect fighter. Ain't nobody ever better. So how'd you beat him? Time beat him. Time, you know, takes everybody out. It's undefeated. Anyway, I got a lot. So when up. Mickey died, he came and talked to you, right? Talked you out of quitting. Took you to L.A. Trained you. Brought you back. How do you know all this? How do you think? What are you, like a cousin? Or... He's my father. raised on and even before Han Solo uh, I'm more interested in hearing what you have to say than anything I have to say since you're from his hometown or he's from your hometown uh, uh, Philadelphia's own Craig Jameson tell me about Philadelphia's own Rocky Balboa my first reaction is a very strong reaction like most of the city uh, born and raised in Philly while I certainly know the difference between Sylvester Stallone and Rocky right. Balboa the fact is it's near impossible to separate the two for two reasons. One, the character was so autobiographical for Stallone at the time, and uh, and he has an important part here, very much remains so, 
And B, he's very autobiographical to the city of Philadelphia, which obviously is my blood and sand and therefore my own soul, too. I mean, at the time he wrote Rocky, Sylvester Stallone was pretty much just known, if known at all, for pulling down small roles, mostly thuggish roles, in movies like Farewell, My Lovely, The Lords of Flatbush, even a small uh, walk-on part, for all intents and purposes, uh, as the guy that Jack Lemmon thought lifted his wallet on the street in uh, The Prisoner of Second Avenue. Then he chased him down and tackled Stallone. Uh, <laughs> but his career was going nowhere and going there pretty fast until he wrote Rocky. And he insisted on not just selling it, but starring in it. And it became a Cinderella story for him. Also for producers Robert Chartoff and Erwin Winkler, who went from like midline movies like The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight and The Mechanic. And after Rocky, they went on to produce some, you know, more prestigious movies like New York, New York, The Right Stuff and Round Midnight. Uh, it made a star out of Bill Conti. And it made a star out of the city of Philadelphia, which at the time... A year prior to Rocky, had undergone a sort of a cosmetic facelift for the 1976 Bicentennial celebration. But at the time, for all intents and purposes, Philly was still the gruffier, less sophisticated younger brother of, like, New York and Washington, D.C. It was kind of like the mentally challenged Eric Roberts to Mickey Rourke in the Pope of Greenwich Village. And that's how most people saw Philly as compared to, like, New York or Boston or D.C. or other cities nearby. But the Rocky films instilled a little geographic pride. Uh, as a result, it encouraged a lot of sports fans and sports uh, teams. I mean, in 81, the Sixers, the Phillies, the Flyers, and the Eagles all went to their respective championships, and the Phillies won. Um, tourism started coming into the city. City government started to see a slow and steady rise in tourism, and re more revitalization took place. A lot of it, um, an extension of the vision of a guy named Edmund Bacon, who was the father of Kevin Bacon, wow. who's also from Philly. He, yeah, he was an ar uh, Edmund Bacon was an architect and city planner. Uh, a lot of people call him the father of modern Philadelphia. He was a city planner for like two decades, and um, he um, <clears throat> had a lot of ideas about how to revitalize and modernize the city, and after Rocky and after these championship games, a lot of that revitalization started to take place, where a lot of those dockside areas became shopping centers. So, um, to this day, everybody kind of remembers that. To this day, Philly has become a film hub, and while we've had movies here with Harrison Ford and Colin Farrell and Bruce Willis and whatever, whenever those movies are filming... People are like, what the fuck? I can't get to work. This damn traffic is in my way. Whenever there's a Rocky movie fil uh, filming in town, the uh, uh, reaction is usually, hey, we're a sly. Let me see him. You know? <laughs> so there's a big thing. Now, on a more personal uh, level, as far as that surprising turn uh, within the character, uh, which still affects me to this day, I guess it's surprising and not surprising because if you have any kind of character, kind of like Harvey Dent says in um, The Dark Knight, you either die as a hero or live long enough to see yourself become a villain. Uh, the Rocky character, and I always thought this was kind of brave, and I guess to a certain degree surprising on Stallone's part, the character in a way has remained autobiographical for him through the years. Um, when you get to Rocky Three and the beginning of Rocky Four, it's kind of the Stallone who has, to a certain degree, let fame go to his head. And it was, you know, around this time, you had movies like Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, <laughs> you know. And a lot of fans felt that he maybe sold out for the dough and maybe forgot where he came from. And he himself needed to regain that eye of the tiger, you know. And that he needed to be beat down a little bit. But uh, like the character Rocky himself, it's not how much you can get hit, it's how much you can take and still get up again. And then he kind of bounced back with a second career where a lot of people were surprised at how 
uh, how big a hit the Expendable films were. And then, of course, Creed comes along, and now he's sort of the elder statesman. And in the same way, he's kind of an elder statesman to a new generation of filmmakers, like Ryan Coogler, who directed Creed. You know, so it, it, it'll be nice to see where the character goes from here in the next Creed film, as he's sort of become a surrogate father now to the uh, Adonis Creed character. But, you know, in the same way, I love how... He never shied away from letting that character be his sort of alter ego, uh, even the darker side of, it, of that alter ego. Then along comes this young guy out of Oakland. I'm going, what? Ryan Coogler. The father's a very soulful, powerful man, and now he's being reduced to a shell of his former self. But oddly, he watches Rocky. Again and again and again. And his son, who loves his father, sitting right beside him, and he's watching his father disintegrate before his very eyes. The traumatic impact was so imprinted on this young man that he never got over it. So he comes to me, he goes, hey, look at this great idea. We're going to, you know, revive Rocky. I go, how? And when he told me the story, I said, this is insane, wrong. You're a young kid. You haven't done anything yet. Uh, but I appreciate the thought. He goes, okay, see you around. And he goes out and he does a masterpiece. Fruitvale Station wins the Cannes Film Festival. Every studio wants him. What's he want to do? Creed. I went, now either this guy here is just trying my patience or he reminds me of a guy I used to know. Shafura? Doesn't matter. What you should be thinking about is that fight coming up. That's the only thing that should be on your mind, nothing what else. What you mean don't think about this? When you start in treatment... I'm not doing no chemotherapy. No. If you don't jump on this quick, you're going to end up dying. I know. And you're all right with that? I am. <laughs> man, you sound crazy, man. Give me the keys. I'll take you to the hospital right now. I'm not crazy at all. If I could take everything that was good and put it into a bowl or something and say, hey, here, I'd like to buy one more day with my wife, I'd do it. I would die a happy man. Right then. Not going to happen. So, everything I got is moved on, and I'm here. But you know what? It's okay. Because I said to myself, if I break, if I'm hurt, whatever, I ain't going to fix it. Why bother? And I'm just some bum that's living in your crib, just, just nothing. You're a good kid and a good fighter. But you got your whole future ahead of you. Mine? Back there, like all them guys on that wall, in the back, in the past, we're going nowhere. I am to you just an old trainer. That's what brought us together, you know? We're not a real family. That was just in our heads, kid. Oh, man, that scene uh, always gets you seriously misty, doesn't it? It sounds like your voice is about to start shaking like with me and Han. (laughs) Cool, okay. (laughs) So how about you uh, from a few hundred miles to the north in Boston? Well, when I first saw it was in a theater in in Edwardsville, Illinois, called The Wildy, uh, which is one of these little brick, uh, small town. It was a big, beautiful palace for a small Midwestern town. It was the kind of place that probably would have been, you know, the premier place in the 30s and the 40s. Right. And in the seventies, it was still in good shape, but um, uh, it, it was a little, a little getting a little run down. 
And when we first, when the when the movie literally first opens on the on the club that Rocky's fighting in, it felt a little bit like the Wildy. It felt a little bit like hmm. these two should be the same place. Okay. And my immediate gut reaction to Rocky was to feel bad for him, because okay. I mean, even at six years old, I could see that this man's pants barely fit him, and someone, you know, a, an opponent throws an unfair punch at him, and it, but he has the dignity to like recognize, hey, that's wait a minute. There are rules to this, and he just pummels the guy, right? I mean, I liked it. I mean, I liked that I felt bad for him, but he's also not going to take crap, mm-hmm. right? Um, and uh, my my the whole reason I even saw Rocky as a little kid, um, I mean, at six, you know, it's not necessarily at least back then the, the kind of movie parents take kids to, but around the same time, Muhammad Ali did a movie called The Greatest, where he yes. plays himself, right? Uh-huh. And I, I mean, I, Ali was one of my my big heroes at the time, and I really wanted my brother was somewhat interested. I was especially like, I have to see that movie. So my dad made this deal with my brother and me. He'll take us to see the Muhammad Ali movie uh, if if we go to him with him to see Rocky because you know he knew he was going to want to see Rocky. He knew, didn't think he can get away with, with like kids in tow. He didn't want to be bothered with by kids in tow and stuff. And but he also had a feeling like my dad. One of the movies that mattered to him when he was when he was eleven was uh, Body and Soul with John Garfield, uh, and he'd, he'd always loved that movie and it always mattered to him. And he had a he had a. A feeling, or at least a hope, that Rocky would be for us what Body and Soul was to him, and um, and turned out it was. You know, I mean, this this you know, and probably even more so since Rocky, you know, had so many returns, um, uh, and Body and Soul was just a one one off moment for a great actor who was unfairly forgotten these days, right? And um, so, in in and in the same way, you know, the struggle of Body and Soul resonated with my dad from for his entire life. Uh, Rocky, the first time we see him there in those unfitting pants, and 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 just seeing this this you know semi-educated guy just kind of being pushed around by everybody around him, um, it, it, I, I I always felt bad for him, but I always felt good for him because he always he he just refused to be anybody's uh, punk, uh-huh, uh-huh. right? Like he would he would take a certain amount of pushing around, he would take a, a certain amount of of kidding. Uh, he would take a certain amount of heartbreak mm-hmm. um of all kinds uh and but he but he had you know like almost like papa i've had enough i've, st- I've stood as much as i can stand no i can't stand them on right like like rocky had his threshold rocky had his point beyond which you will not make him feel mm-hmm. down mm-hmm. or be down and and um you know the music alone tells that story um, but Sly tells that story, and you know what? It was actually one of the earliest. It's not the first LP I ever bought, but it's probably somewhere in the t- in the first five. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, you're going to talk about those liner notes, right? Right. Ex- yes, I am. Yeah, yeah, reading okay. Sly's liner <laughs> yes. notes about Bill Conti and saying how, and he's ready that how did this man from initially just seeing a script and barely a work print? How did this man capture? What I was trying to do here, this man is a genius. And I don't know if you remember the end of the notes. How did Bill Conti do this? He's a genius. Oh, wait, of course, he's Italian. Italian. Right, right. right. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and again, six or seven years old reading that, it just and, and me being okay. a quarter Sicilian <laughs> on my mom's side, you know, that, that was my connection to it. It was like my dad's connection from body and soul, my Italian connection, um, my mom and dad both growing up around New York and stuff. Um, 
my dad having grown up and my brother being my brother and my dad were both born in Passaic, New Jersey. So they, you know, they know from towns like like that that same scene that you were describing. Aftermath of Rocky and then Rocky Two, like those two in particular, they they gave my dad and me a bit of a, a shorthand, right? So that um, my, my first <laughs> I mean, I guess if I'm really going to short, long story short, it would wait to wait for that. <laughs> you but like uh, my my first impression of Rocky uh, was a summation of stories my dad was trying to tell me but couldn't for any number of reasons. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, at an age where I was too young to recognize that and spent growing up with Rocky recognizing that. And as for how the character relates to you and you relate to him today... Colorfully enough, uh, same as Han and Indy, for me, the, the telltale turn for Rocky was in the second movie mm-hmm. again. Um, it was, it was. I mean, it was basically the entire first half of the movie seeing him, you know, he buys the cool jacket, he buys the mm-hmm. cool car, he buys this, he buys, gets the house, and he loves the steps in the house. Look at these nice steps, right? And then little by little, he starts losing the jacket, losing the car. How do I make sure I don't lose the house? Right, right, right. right. Have a baby. And it all comes down to, for me, it culminates in that scene with he and Adrian in the basement where he tells her, I never asked you to stop being a woman. Please don't ask me to stop being a man. Mm. And at nine years old, I didn't know what the hell a man was yet, hmm. right? I mean, I, have, I had a rough idea. It's Rocky and Han Solo, but, you know, I hadn't really thought about it in any larger context. And that was a, it never would have dawned on me that hmm. Rocky was stopping to be a man until he actually said it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then that, that just started bringing me back to uh, that that moment in the basement in Rocky Two was what opened up for me how much Rocky can say in how few words. Hmm. And um, and often does and when for me at, you know, in the best moments, you know these are the these to me are the moments that make the whole damn movie, uh, except for forward. You know he never really you've already you know I've already argued about this <laughs> right right right. <laughs> There's just those moments are there, but we're you know we're, since we're talking about first impression and the moment that turned, yeah one and two again and um, uh, that's that's really and 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 um, I mean I was I was first becoming interested in girls. Mm-hmm. In my fourth, third, and fifth grade classes, right around the time that second movie came mm-hmm. along, and to see a guy as tough as him showing some vulnerability, mm-hmm. uh, it was like kind of in an age where Burt Reynolds was right, 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 right. Um, uh, it, it it showed me that that, and it's not even just you know. I'm a weepy emo man. Weep for me because I'm all weepy too. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, sorry, it's not okay. Right, right, right. It's, I don't mean it that way, and I didn't mean it that way at the time. But what it did strike me of yeah. is just honesty. Right, right. Just a guy who it's has like, a presence he, of mind about himself, and he's he's more honest than anybody around him. Yeah, you didn't have to um, be Morrissey to to have feelings. Right, exactly. You know? <laughs> right, right. What is it? A weak vaccine against the virus Agent Scully has been infected with. The virus is extraterrestrial. We know very little about it except that it was the original inhabitant of this planet. A virus. What is a virus but a colonizing force that cannot be defeated, living in a cave underground until it mutates and attacks? This is what you've been conspiring to conceal? 
A disease? No, for God's sake, you've got it all backwards. AIDS, the Ebola virus, on an evolutionary scale, they are newborns. This virus walked the planet long before the dinosaurs. What do you mean, walked? Your aliens, Agent Mulder, your little green men, arrived here millions of years ago. Those that didn't leave have been lying dormant underground since the last ice age in the form of an evolved pathogen, waiting to be reconstituted by the alien race when it comes to colonize the planet. for different reasons. No explainable cause of death. Do you have a theory? You believe in the existence of extraterrestrials. One a skeptic, one a believer. Both trying to answer questions that were never meant to be uncovered. I think those kids have been abducted. By who? By what? Seal this up. Nobody sees or touches this. Distinguishing features indicate subject is not human. You've got to trust me. I gotta know what they're protecting. Hold it right there. Between reality and fantasy. You've got to protect me. Terror and reason. Mulder, what are they? Trust and betrayal. The X-rays and pictures. Lie the chilling secrets. Mulder, is that you? Mulder? Of the X-Files. Agent Mulder, what are his thoughts? Agent Mulder believes we are not alone. The X-Files, a new dramatic series premiering Friday, September 10th on Fox. The couple that we mentioned earlier. The couple. That would be Fox Mulder and Dana Scully from the X-Files. Uh, in fact, this week, I believe uh, the 10th is the uh, September 10th, is when the very first X-Files pilot episode debuted in 1993, I believe it was. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so kind of while we're recording this, it's a couple of days before the X-Files anniversary, so I guess that's somewhat appropriate. And since then, you know, the show was on for nine seasons. Uh, There was the first film, uh, Fight the Future, which came out between season five and six. Uh, And then in, and that was like, what, 98? Uh, Mm -hmm. And then the second film, I want to believe, came out in 2008. And then just last year, we had the limited Fox miniseries, and, uh, and, and I hear we're getting another you know, limited miniseries sometime next year, too. So these are two characters that we've grown up with, too, as well. So, uh, so same thing for you. Your first impression with the X-Files uh, characters, with uh, mm-hmm. Duchovny, Anderson, Mulder, Scully. Um, you know, same, kind of same as Han Solo. The first time I, I watched the show from the beginning, not rapidly as much as some of my bigger sci-fi friends mm-hmm. did. My my initial reaction to them was that this is just like every other. Uh, well, basically, it's moonlighting and Remington Steel without a sense of humor. Hmm. Interesting, you say that. You know, okay. It actually, it actually kind of <coughs> bugged me at first that it was almost trying not, cynically to be too cool. Hmm. You know, and. Um, uh, I, mean, I watched it because it was nerdy and there wasn't an awful else, awful lot else nerdy on at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really did take until 
pretty far into that first season for me to really go, okay, you know what, now, I see what they're doing now, and I'm, I'm hooked and I'm in for it, um, and I'll stick along with it. But my, my immediate reaction was these guys just seem like uh, almost cookie-cutter cool characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it's a, I think it's kind of a, almost, you know what, I think it's kind of a, I, my guess at the time and remains that it's kind of a credit to the actors. Mm. Um, uh, no disrespect to Chris Carter, mm-hmm. but I think I think these. I mean, I remember interviews with them even at the time that that Jillian uh, Anderson and David Duchovny just actually liked being around each other, mm-hmm. and they they I think they bought more to these characters than was on the page, and and that, that was my initial reaction around the second season where I started liking it, and then when I went back and started rewatching, okay, you know what? It was on the page, but just in ways that that. Um, that I didn't receive the first time mm-hmm, around, mm-hmm. so I think it was just. Uh, uh, it took me a bit to realize that it was there in the writing, but but I realized pretty early on that it was there in the performing, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? That they just they they worked well together, and that it was you know it was one of those lucky casting things. And I bet if they had cast differently, the show might have not lasted that mm-hmm. long. Um, I think they just hit a perfect storm of two people who just really sync well together. Um, and and as far as uh, the moment that really turned that for me was there was a, a couple episode arc, two episodes, uh, Dwayne Barry and Ascension. Do you remember these? Uh, or, no, because I was never yeah. as into the X-Files as most people, so I can't okay. name the episodes by name like most can. But you'll understand okay. when I explain my view All but right. uh, sorry <laughs> <laughs> well Dwayne Barry one of the things that hooked me in here and it, it, Dwayne Barry was one of the early episodes where they had a really cool supporting character like an actor who like oh I like that it was Steve Rouse oh neat okay uh, right played Dwayne Barry I was like oh wait a minute now we're getting now we're going really nerd cool okay. right and then later on they would have Brad Dourif right. and like a lot of other really cool like actors that only actors nerds from know. genre film yeah. yes and they, they kept doing that but Dwayne Barry was the first time that they really did that and Dwayne Barry the character Steve Raisback plays Dwayne Barry and Dwayne Barry kidnaps Scully mm-hmm. And it's not your standard woman in Jeopardy plot line, but it also became the first of many times that they just keep saving each other mm-hmm. one after the right. other. And it wasn't always... And, and that's the other thing I liked about it was that it, this was, I think, the first show where regularly it was an even money bet who rescues who. And it's not always the guy right. rescuing the girl. And occasionally she gets hit to rescue him, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes they would rescue each other within the same episode several times. <laughs> so, But that, that episode scared the crap out of me. And it really, that, it was a two episode that, that really uh, wrote me in. And it was also, it wasn't the first episode with the cigarette smoking man, mm-hmm. but it was early. It was one of his first three or four appearances. And um, that was the first time that I recognized, okay, we have a good constant villain here and it's somebody who they should be able to trust. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it kind of, it was one that now they're this united front against this guy. And two, just the, the there's their rescuing sequences were a little more harrowing than I'm used to out of, say, Remington Steel and Moonlight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that, to me, is when the show kind of really grew up. It's insidious, Scully. Award for pregnant woman paid for by Augustus Goldman, the founder of a company with deep ties to the Department of Defense. This could be another phase of the project. Their experiments in eugenics, those women in there, will be incubators. Mulder. I found a fragile little girl. Scully. This is what you suspected all along, but were afraid to articulate. Is this what you believe happened to me 15 years ago? 
when I got pregnant, when I had my baby? Was I just an incubator? You're never just anything to me, Scully. Do you ever think about William? Yes. Of course I do, but I've, I feel like I've had to put that behind me. He'd be 15 years old now. And I've missed every single year of his life. Sometimes I hate myself that I didn't have the courage to stand by him. You did what you did to keep him safe. His adoption is secret, his location is unknown because you had to protect him. Do you believe he was an experiment? I don't know. What if he's out there somewhere? Like one of those kids on Sanjay's wall, fighting for his life. All we can do, Scully, is pull the thread, see what it unravels. Now, interesting that you should mention how it took you a while to lock onto the X-Files as you were not as huge a fan, because neither was I. Um, and it's funny that you should even mention Moonlighting and that sort of thing, because I, I have a similar response. Uh, you know, Again, because i probably a few years older than you and a lot of the people who got into X-Files. I didn't get... Uh, X-Files started when I was like in my early 20s, rather than in my teens, uh, if I can recall correctly, 93, yeah, you know, thereabouts. And I didn't watch it regularly every week for the first two seasons. And I don't know exactly why. The show sounded interesting, but I think in retrospect it might have been because the show and episodes, I knew it was sort of a takeoff on Night Stalker and the Norlis tapes and stories by Richard Matheson and Robert Block and William F. Nolan. And because I was familiar with those guys, I was like, yeah, I'm familiar with it. You know, it's a contemporary version of those and by that time, you know, I was interested. I was starting to seriously consider, you know, when you're going out and dating, looking for her. You know, not just dating, but seriously dating seriously. So my Friday nights were kind of preoccupied, <laughs> you know, gotcha. or hoping to be preoccupied, trying to preoccupy those. And at the time, it's not like now where you can just stream old episodes. Obviously, I had a VHS player. But I wasn't interested enough in the show to record it every Friday night and watch later. So it wasn't until a couple of years later that I caught up with The X-Files. And what I think latched me into it more than anything else was that whole silent sexual tension, unadmitted feelings below the surface thing like Willis and Bruce, uh, Willis and Bruce Shepard, Bruce Willis and Civil Shepard and Moonlighting. <laughs> or, you know, the other versions, Tony Danza and Judith Light and Who's the Boss or Ted Danza and Shelley Long on Cheers. But like you said... The way I would put it, when I, I first realized that X-Files was kind of a more grown-up version of that, in the sense that it wasn't just the upper-crust gal and the blue-collar guy have a thing for one another, but it was two characters with very different, very pronounced worldviews, very different philosophical views. And as such, for me anyway, at that slightly older age, within their back and forth... I could hear two people from maybe not just two different economic backgrounds, but different races or different religions or different political parties, you know, who coming to admire and respect then fall in love with the person behind those ideals, you know. And it always kind of, to me, was how do we reconcile both these very distinct differences and the common interest? Now, on top of that, the fact that it was kind of all that was done within the context of those Matheson, Block, Stephen King-like stories was just kind of like the icing on the cake. And I was like, oh, wow, this is this is kind of cool because of that. I mean, and like you said, up until then, you mentioned kind of geeky, nerdy, the 
the topics the show dealt into, you know, alien abduction and that sort of thing and, and, and whatever. You know, uh, the Jersey Devil, which I thought was a fascinating one coming from coming one, from yeah. this area growing up in South Jersey mm-hmm. uh, in Philadelphia. But people who were interested in that stuff back then were pretty much looked at more like the lone gunman characters or the X-Files. They were intelligent mm-hmm. and insightful, but also kind of weird and creepy and socially bass awkward, you know. <laughs> but after <laughs> Duchovny's Mulder and Anderson Scully, being intelligent kind of became sexy and hip, you know. Uh, I mean, all, all the women wanted to be with the company. All the guys wanted Jillian Anderson. And in retrospect, it turned out many women wanted her, too. Yeah. <laughs> but the fact is they kind of made intelligence and not coloring between the lines sexy, you know. Uh, and I also found that challenge of realistic relationships very admirable. So that's kind of what my first response was once I finally caught up and started watching the shows a couple of years after it had been on. Now, for me, the big surprise, which sticks with me today, is uh, in the second film, I want to believe. A lot of people didn't like that film. I Every time I watch that, I like it more and more. I liked it when I first saw it. I love it now. Um, mm. Yeah, a lot of people didn't like it because it was dark and slow. I heard one critic refer to it, what I think is perfect. They said that um, whereas the first film was a very big screen um, uh, rendition of The X-Files, and I agree. And, this, and, and the series needed that. This one is a lot more intimate and dark. It's kind of like the difference between an Igmar Bergman film and a Michael Bay film. And even though that's a broad stroke to paint it in, I can see where they were coming from. Because I like the fact that it's not until you're 30 or so minutes into the second film that you discover that inter- intervene, in the intervening 10 or so years, they actually had a child together. And that they had lost the child, uh, Mulder and Scully. And that both of them had been dealing with this uh, dash to their belief systems in their own way. Um, that I love. And uh, while uh, the Scully character is having these issues about why does evil happen in the world, in essence, why does God let evil happen in the world? Because she's working at this religious-based hospital, you know, where she's still the rational thinker. So it becomes this movie almost like faith versus science. Which is kind of a topic that a lot of filmmakers are afraid or too intelligent or modern to want to go into. And I kind of applauded uh, Chris Carter for going into those murky waters, literally going where angels fear to tread. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. but um, I like how in the midst of this, trying to figure out why my innocent child died, you have this former priest who was a child molester receiving what he believes are visions from God, helping to solve the serial killer case. And it's like, God, what the... F is up with your mind, you know? <laughs> and Scully's having serious problems with this. And I love how that story continues their philosophical differences on another level. I mean, because I think, and this is where some people might have a problem with me and with this, but um, I think we have to acknowledge, which many have yet to do, that there is a fierce religious streak running like the Nile or the Mississippi River through global humanity. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that one is pro-religion or anti-religion or agnostic or atheistic or whatever. It's just the elephant in the room that many don't want to address. Or when they do, when it is addressed, it's addressed in a mundane and emotional and seldom intelligent manner by either side. But um, I think that not even in a religious sense, in a philosophical sense, as you get older you just start to wonder about the nature of your, not just the existence of the world, but your own personal existence. And I think a filmmaker who in recent years has very much come to exemplify that is Ridley Scott. 
I think mm. you find that most of his films since the tragic death of his director brother Tony have right. been films which address that cosmic question um, about man's place in the grand design of things. It's very much and obvious in Exodus, God and Kings, duh, uh, Gods and Kings, mm-hmm. and Kingdom of Heaven, but it's also in Prometheus, Alien Covenant, The Martian, even in a smaller, in more intimate degree in Matchstick Men, you know, um, where you have characters wondering about their place as they get older in, in, in life and in the universe. So I think it's normal for people to wonder that. And what I like about I, uh, I Want to Believe, and with the new uh, series uh, of episodes that came out last year, is that um, they're still dragging that kind of stuff into the daylight. And in the same way in which the original series became a grown-up version of relationships uh, in, the con- in the context of this genre story, the new series and the, and the films have kind of, for me, become the grown-up version of the existential drama. And that's rare and brave, And when it's well done, uh, it's hard to discount or ignore. Your pulse is 242. Your blood pressure is practically non-existent. Assuming you call that green stuff in your veins blood. The readings are perfectly normal for me, doctor. Thank you. And as for my anatomy being different from yours, I am delighted. Once again, composer Edwin Wendler, with something quite removed from what you heard earlier. This time, a mini-suite featuring the title track from the 2010 animated science fiction adventure Azurius Rising, tethered to the piece Score One for Cassie, from the 2015 thriller sequel I Spit on Your Grave, Vengeance is Mine.
Hey, Edwin. How goes it, man? How are you? Good. How are you? Busy. Busy these days, but in uh, uh, but in the very best of ways. Very good. Well, uh, welcome to the Movie Sneak. And while I've been following your career for some time now, and while we've been batting Facebook messages and emails and such back and forth for a while, it's uh, a great pleasure to finally chat with you live, as it were. Yes, it's it's also a great pleasure for me because I've been reading your comments and your posts, and they've all been very informative. And, and I agree with you like 100% of the time. If you really love a score... I usually love it too. So. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that's that's been that's been wonderful to hear. Uh, you know your reactions on things because they're usually spot on. I think. <laughs> wow, cool. Thanks, man. Uh, as I'm certainly not a film composer, but merely a lifelong fan of the craft, albeit a sometimes opinionated one. Uh, <laughs> that's a big time honor. So uh, thanks again. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's because we both share the same birthday of April 11th. Huh? Oh, maybe, <laughs> I don't know what yes. Aries brothers of the horns or whatever. We're maybe. in sync. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, jumping into it, uh, Maestro, there is definitely a bona fide composer's complexity uh, to your work, uh, for lack of a better term, classical composer's complexity. And it's present in that which you've done as an orchestrator with others, sorry, with others such as Paul Haslinger and John Ottman uh, to your own solo films, ranging from the epicness of, say, Azurius Rising to the more funk, rock, groove-oriented I Spit on Your Grave, Vengeance is Mine, or even the more atonal thriller score, Unnatural. Uh, from where do you think this wide-ranging musical palette uh, interest originates and why the career discipline of film music specifically, and not something more, I guess as some people would say, traditional. Well, thank you for your kind words. Um, I grew up with musical parents. Uh, both my parents are singers. Well, they don't actively sing anymore, but they, they were both trained to be singers. And my dad, for many, many years worked professionally as a singer at the Vienna State Opera and also as an wow. assistant director and later as a stage director himself, not at the Vienna State Opera, but uh, in smaller opera houses in, in Austria, primarily in Germany. And then my mom is also a trained singer. She originally um, studied at Rutgers University here in the States. And then uh, her vocal teacher said, if you're really serious about um, vocal training. I know this teacher in Vienna, so that's how my mom came to be in Vienna, in Austria. That's where she met my dad at the Vienna State Opera, which is sort of a funny story um, because she uh, was auditioning for the State Opera Choir at the time, and she came in on the wrong date. So she was just wandering <laughs> the hallways, uh, confused and aimless, and my dad found her. And uh, he helped her set up an appointment for a later day, and that's how they first met. So, um, oh, wow. yeah, so, so both my parents obviously are rooted in classical music, and I grew up listening mm -hmm. to a lot of classical music on LPs and on the radio. And my dad also had a small film music collection, you know, the, the usual things that you would expect, the Star Wars scores. Mm -hmm. um, and he even had Tron. Um, nice. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I listened to some of those and immediately got hooked. And then I remember like a key memory for me regarding film music is when E.T. came out because it was such, mm. obviously such a visible movie with a lot of mm -hmm. hype and, you know, all the merchandise and everything. And I was 
a kid that was in the perfect target audience. You know, I, I, <laughs> right. I wanted those toys. I wanted to go see the movie as early mm-hmm. as possible. And my dad at the time, well, both my parents, but but uh, really my dad was kind of fed up with all the publicity. And he's like, I've heard so much about this movie now. I don't even want to see it. So it's way too oh, yeah. much. So I, I uh, gathered some money from my piggy banks uh, and, and cool. paid for my own ticket. And nice. my dad nice. said, okay, I'll go with you. Um, <laughs> and the music just left an incredible impression on me. And I really wanted to go buy the soundtrack album and for some strange reason at the time in Austria you couldn't find it I don't know if it was a distribution thing that the distribution was a bit late or everybody had bought every copy in existence Mm -hmm. in Vienna but I had the hardest time finding that thing and then finally one day I went with my dad to a a record store and I found it and was of course overjoyed and listened to it many many times Now, from earlier discussions, uh, I understand that the, uh, an interim uh, musical education was some time you spent with the Vienna Boys Choir for about four years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you've stated uh, that while it was not what psychologically and even musically you were interested in, the whole boarding school aspect of things, uh, that the discipline of rehearsal and constant performing, uh, uh, as well as the fact that you went from what like first soprano to second soprano to first alto <laughs> as you grew older and your voice changed, did teach you invaluable musical lessons, not the least of which was about the importance of harmony. So how the bridge from that into specifically film music? You know, as I said uh, earlier with E.T. and other movies that came out at the time, I just was fascinated by the way music worked in movies. And I couldn't get that music out of my head it's just so memorable and it has such an incredible impact in terms of drama and storytelling um, that it was very clear to me fairly early on I would say at age 11 or something like that that Mm -hmm. that was the kind of thing that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with and I didn't know if it was just as a listener, you know, writing or teaching about film music, yeah. or if it was uh, me actively participating and creating music. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when I uh, studied piano, this was also during my time at the Vienna Choir Boys, um, I found that just learning music, memorizing it and sight reading was a difficult thing for me. I I really struggled, especially with sight reading. Mm. And it was just much easier and much more pleasurable for me to start improvising. And Mm. and that's how my first compositions happened, is just improvisation and not wanting to sight read, which is kind of strange. Um, But that's how it happened. And um, so I, I always had a fascination with film music. I always wanted to do it. Um, at age 21, I got a chance to study it at UCLA Extension. Nice. And so I took advantage of it. And, and also, it immediately felt right. Uh, you know, I, I had studied other things before, after I graduated high school. Um, I tried several different things at, at uh, university in Vienna. And uh, all of it was a struggle for me. Mm. I'm, I've always been a good student, so I had good grades, but it was just depressing it it never felt right so when i started at ucla extension studying film music and also screenwriting it it just felt natural to me it didn't feel like work it felt more like play Hmm. so i i i I felt confident that that was the right thing for me to do awesome awesome 
<laughs> okay. Uh, definitely don't want to blab on too much and definitely want to wrap it up soon, but uh, it, definitely an important, very important uh, aspect of things. In the last decade plus, you've come to impress many as someone with a very distinct but, and this is kind of a nebulous idea here, at the same time, ironically, diverse musical voice. And this in an era when many say, and I don't necessarily agree with them, though I can see why they might say this, there seems to be a terrible oral sameness to so many film scores. Uh, we earlier played an intimate chamber-like piece of yours from the documentary The Right to Love. Then we did a back-to-back of Azurius Rising and I Spit on Your Grave, which, with its kind of hardcore funkiness, is not necessarily the vibe one might immediately think of as the go-to musical tone for what is essentially a horror-thriller type thing. Uh, or even something like Escape, with its oceanic vibe. Uh, but all of the above, in some way, still managed to sound like Edwin Wendler. I mean, you know, how like Maurice Jarre has written epic Lawrence and Zhivago material, but also the Electronic Witness score and the more Latin-influenced Moon Over Parador and others, but as vastly different as they are, they all somehow manage to sound like Maurice Jarre. Uh, same thing with uh, James Horner, you know. Uh, for years, it was always fascinated that the same guy, hard to believe that the same guy who did the hard-edged uh, urban 48 hours and commando is the same guy who did the more ethereal Field of Dreams and the more uh, melodic cocoon. But they all still sound like James Horner. Uh, same thing with your work. Well, it's just a, a flood of compliments, with all of which I really appreciate, and, and I'm not sure if they're deserved, but I, I, <laughs> I thank you very, very much. Um, you know, you, you touched upon a whole bunch of things, so let me try to address each and every one of them. <laughs> Sorry no, no, no problem. They're, they're all great points. Uh, the, the first, I think, is about having a personal voice, and that is something that... For some reason, and, and I've heard other composers talk about this, but I'm unable to to hear my own voice in my music. You know, obviously <laughs> it comes out as me because it comes from me. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, as analytical as I can get listening to other people's music, it's just it seems impossible for me to be analytical about my own music, <laughs> other than criticizing it. So. My my ears and my brain seem to be immune to detecting any sort of personal voice in my music um and maybe that's a good thing i I don't know but i'm i keep being mystified by it and i've heard other people tell me that they can hear my voice sort of get through Mm -hmm. different genres of music you know you mentioned a few examples escape is totally very different from i spit in a grave for instance um yet people are able to hear you know certain wendlerisms i guess i i have no no idea Um, and I'm glad that people can hear that. I, for some strange reasons, cannot. Uh, uh, to the other point that you mentioned, which is the, the richness of music and, and complexity of music, it's, I think it comes from a desire on my part to, um, to create something interesting that's, that's just interesting to listen to and maybe takes you to some unexpected places. Um, just, just when I listen to music as, as an audience member, uh, I think the perfect balance is if you have music such as James Horner's that, that is emotionally meaningful, but also intellectually interesting. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, there, there's, there's always something interesting going on in his music. 
and and there are many other composers for instance in uh, when I took classes at UCLA Extension, one of the very, very useful classes was uh, Stephen Scott Smalley's class uh, oh, nice. in orchestration, where he taught us about Alan Silvestri's music. And he said in Silvestri's music, consistently, you can look at every piece of music that he wrote, there are always three independent things going on. <laughs> and they all do their own thing, and they all, <laughs> of course, work in concert with each other. Uh-huh. Um, they are a cohesive entity. But you can always distinguish at least three separate elements. They're doing their own thing and they're doing interesting things when you juxtapose them. Nice. Um, And that was a very important lesson for me to learn. And I always try doing that. Uh, And I've heard other composers, um, such as Daniel Licht, for instance, he thinks of music uh, in terms of space. Mm -hmm. Um, In his music, it is important that there's always something happening right in front of you in the foreground that's very focused and then something else needs to happen that's a little farther Mm -hmm. away, and then yet another dimension of the music that's sort of very distant Mm. and and, uh, creates an atmosphere in which those more focused elements can happen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I guess over time I've developed this um, preference for music that's that's complex, that has different things going on at the same time. Um, But as you know, you know, it, it, it all depends on the dramatic context sometimes all the music really needs is a piano solo or or just one voice Mm -hmm. um so it it all depends on the context but and thank you for listening so carefully that uh, yes it it is my goal to to make music interesting and (laughs) and to have uh you know various things happen at the same time cool well you make it really easy to uh to to listen (laughs) and so far at least you've managed to not get boxed in pigeonholed stereotyped into a certain kind of genre of film uh you still seem to have quite a bit of a creative leeway to go from here to here to this kind of film to that kind of film and uh, exercise your craft well i mean it's uh, you, you know the history of film music very very well so uh you know you mentioned a couple of examples another example would be uh, elmer bernstein of course mm-hmm. you know who was the go-to comedy composer uh-huh. uh, after he was the go-to biblical epic composer or you know uh, you, you get the uh, Miklos Roja mm-hmm. and and film noir and then also the the biblical, biblical epics. epics yeah and you know so it's uh, I, I guess as a composer you know some composers embrace the stereotypes others want to break away from them mm-hmm. and and intentionally seek up projects that are very different from what they're known for um I I tend to embrace projects, you know, just because I want to work and I want to work as often as possible. <laughs> right, so right, there you go. <laughs> if somebody offers me yet another thriller, uh, you know, or, or another horror movie, I'm I'm happy to accept. Boom, it. And, exactly. But uh, I'm sure you know you know this also that simply uh, by virtue of doing a couple of those, you you are in a position that you just want to make it interesting for yourself. Yeah. And again, I've re- I'm reminded of a quote from Jerry Goldsmith um, in which he basically said that there's only so many ways you can do a chase, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and here we have a composer who has done so many chase sequences over the course of his career, but they're all fascinating <laughs> Damn, and interesting. Awesome, and, yeah. And especially rhythmically challenging yeah. and complex and, and incredibly exciting to listen to. So... Uh, I think all of us composers just try to make it interesting for ourselves, even if we get pigeonholed, if you will, mm-hmm. 
in a certain genre. So, and but fortunately for me, the 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 horror movies and the thrillers that I've been associated with uh, have have been different tonally and in terms of who the main character is and what the situations are and what is required of the music. Uh-huh. That has kept it interesting for me. Um, for instance, right now I'm I'm working on yet another horror movie, but it's it's actually more of a comedy than a horror movie, mm. and I really appreciate that aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I'm reminded of Elmer Bernstein, who basically taught us that playing it straight sometimes makes it funniest. Nice, so, exactly. Uh, I'm, I'm doing that in this comedic context. Nice. Well, dude, uh, thank you so much for doing this. This was this was freaking awesome. Thank you so much. It's it's fantastic to talk to you in person. We should do it more often. <laughs> Hell yeah! I'd love to. <laughs> we'll call it the uh, the sequel cool. interview. Thank you so much, Craig. This was a lot of fun. <laughs> Big time. Uh, thank you, and uh, take care, brother. Have a good one. All right. Thank you. Take care. Oh, man. Uh, so much material with Edwin we didn't have a chance to get into, um, including, but not limited to... Uh, his collaborations on the X-Men films, on Teristas, The Nice Guys, and so many others. But um, So we definitely got to do a follow-up. Uh, but for those who want to hear and see Edwin's work synced, the music and the films, uh, The Right to Love is presently available to view on Snag Films and also on Snag Films on YouTube. The very clever snowbound creature feature, Unnatural, is currently running for free on Showtime On Demand. Uh, I Spit on Your Grave, Vengeance is Mine, is currently running on Stars Encore. The animated multi-award winning Azurius Rising, which also won Best Original Score at the Los Angeles International Film Festival, is available to view online. Uh, oh, and the horror comedy he was referring to that he recently uh, worked on is the... Um, Comeback metal band versus a monstrous insects thriller, uh, kind of a very Joe Dante-esque kind of thing, uh, called Dead Ant, starring Sean Astin and Tom Arnold, in which debuts this October 2017 at LA's Scream Fest. And if you want to listen to a lot more of Edwin's work, sort of the online version of the old school record store listening booth, head over to his immense website, edwinwendler.com. That's one word, spelled E-D-W-I-N-W-E-N-D-L-E-R dot com. And there you'll find selections from his work as arranger, orchestrator, and composer on Into the Blue, Nonstop, The Nice Guys, Charistas, TV's Fear Factor, and Sleeper Cell, I Spit on Your Grave, X-Men Days of Future Past, and X-Men Apocalypse, Azurius Rising, The Right to Love, and so many more. Yeah, uh, these days, uh, Edwin Wendler is everywhere you cinematically look and listen, and deservedly so. Sheep. Out of danger. Yes. Don't grieve, Admiral. Just logical. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. I never took the copy.
Finally, uh, now we shimmy into Leonard Nimoy as Mr. Spock. And originally, we were going to just do the original Star Trek cast, but that would have been a bit too broad and time-consuming. Whole show, right? <laughs> I'm sorry, exactly. We could do a whole show on that. But um, when you get right down to it, Mr. Spock, even though Kirk is obviously the main character in the show, and William Shatner's name comes first in all the credits... Um, in some respects, Leonard Nimoy was kind of the heart and soul of the show as Mr. Spock. Uh, and for me, my first impression, and it's kind of funny because to a degree, almost like with Sylvester Stallone and Rocky Balboa, even though I know there's a difference between Leonard Nimoy and Mr. Spock, it's really hard to separate the actor and the actor's career from that character. Um, so first of all, as with Rocky and Stallone, there's a more global impression of Spock. My first impression would be, like back when Star Trek first started, back in the late 60s, um, we had a black and white TV. And my very first response was, for whatever reason, people always said Spock was green. I guess because he was referred to as green-blooded. Right. And when we finally got a color TV, years later, and when the reruns were on, you know, in syndication, uh, after much futzing about with the tint and, and other controls, I discovered that this is bullshit. He's not green, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so that was my first response yeah. to Mr. Spock. Lion, Lion bastard. bastard. exactly. <laughs> you know, uh, my second response was basically, and, and this wasn't a conscious thing because I was still a kid, but I think looking back on it, I related to this, was the exoticness or exotic nature of Spock's being. I mean, Trek, of course, debuted during the Civil Rights Movement. And while we had characters like Uhura and Chekhov and Scotty and other of the multi-ethnic crew, and they were ethnic. And as such, they were specific. So one, if inclined, could block them out if your social or political views weren't as, say, liberal. But Spock's non-humanness but at the same time, more human than others, other humans, <laughs> made him a stand-in mm-hmm. that nobody could ignore. I mean, everyone loved him from the get-go and grew to love him even more over the years. So his differentness made him perhaps more accessible on a, for lack of a better term, subconscious level to the masses, you know. I mean, as an African-American, obviously I was aware of the importance of Michelle Nichols as Uhura. Uh, I was aware of the political importance of Chekhov during the Cold War. But I could probably more personally relate to Spock, who had a sense of noble, intelligent, and regal outside outsiderness. And it wasn't that he was overcoming his outsider outsiderness, which made him noble. It was the fact that he kind of took great pride in it. And in time, the others around him came to realize how he had every reason to take pride in that. You know, uh, now, as far as the turning point for me, and again, this is where the character of Spock and the actor Leonard Nimoy kind of start to intertwine. Um, but uh, in the 80s, when Nimoy slowly but surely was able to separate himself as an actor from the change of the Spock character, but at the same time was able to embrace the character. He was no longer a slave to the character. But, I mean, with the possible exception of William Shatner, who obviously went off and did T.J. Hooker and some other stuff, but I think to an even greater degree, Nimoy was able to 
Nimoy was kind of like Ron Howard being able to go from Opie and Richie Cunningham to become Ron Howard, the filmmaker. And to me, Leonard Nimoy was able to do that too. You know, obviously he directed some TV episodes and then he directed uh, a couple of Trek movies. But then when he went and did Three Men and a Baby, people kind of started to take him seriously, ironically, with a romantic comedy. You know, people started to take him seriously as not just Mr. Spock, but as a filmmaker. Right. Uh, right. So while you have a character who is right up there with pop culture icons like Sherlock Holmes and Tarzan, um, he was able to separate himself from that character and still return to it. Um, So that character, almost a half century, 47 years from 1966 all the way through Star Trek Into Darkness in 2013. So that character and Leonard Nimoy, for me, um, just exemplified the ability to be you, but to still remain faithful to what got you there. So so that would be my uh, uh, personal and global take on Leonard Nimoy and Spock. the death of my son I was prejudiced by her accomplishments as a Vulcan Vulcan had to die before I understood how prejudiced I was is it possible that we two you and I have grown so old and so inflexible we have outlived our usefulness. Would that constitute a joke? Don't crucify yourself. It wasn't your fault. I was responsible. For no actions but your own. That is not what you said at your trial. That was as captain of the ship. Human beings. But, Captain, we both know that I am not human. Spock, you want to know something? Everybody's human. Find that remark insulting. Well, you know, my, my first impression of him was probably it's it's. There were times I thought, well, Spock's kind of a jerk, though, <laughs> wouldn't he? <laughs> right, he just, he just um, writes people off and shit. Right, right. and uh, and it, as a little kid, I was oh, Spock's kind of rude. <laughs> That's right, right. right, McCoy seems a lot more open and honest. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, but. Uh, you know, I, I I warmed to him quickly enough, and I got that you know that that he is the butt of everyone else's jokes, but somehow manages to never like, wow, that guy can take a joke like nobody's business. You know, it's not that he doesn't understand the joke, and he knows he's being made fun of. He just doesn't give right, a exactly. Thing, you exactly. know, it'll never ruffle his yeah. feathers. So that that was fun, but I could almost say that the 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 game changer moment for me. Uh, was the first movie hmm. um, the first time we see him in the motion picture and he's like a bedraggled he looks like Jeff Lebowski mm-hmm. out there right <laughs> <laughs> like his hair's all long he's got the robe uh, on he's got everything but a, he's got everything but a but a, 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 a Kalua a cream right 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 right, right? Might rush it, yeah. um, <laughs> but you know and but one he looks bedraggled he looks like he's been through something immense and he's at his final stage of achieving that something. Like culinary ritual, yeah. And he says no. Yeah, yeah. And at nine years old, he's like, wait a minute. I can see. Just, you know, and, and, and to a nine. And that's, a, that's the great thing. That movie is, for my money, so under. Oh, it is. It really is. Um, right? The, and that they're able to communicate to a nine-year-old with some production design, 
with a good performance without any dialogue that this man has just come through some immense challenge he's earned something he's more than earned something and yet something is making him reject it um that that to me told me that I you know I need to go back revisit and pay way more attention to this character and and you go back into the the, the pilot mm. uh, well there's various versions right, of what right. we would consider the pilot but basically the, I mean one of one of his first things he ever did in in the pilot was to basically commit mutiny mm-hmm. right and trying to trying to give Captain, Captain Pike, Pike a better yeah. life so in a way Spock is the original rebel. He's probably the most rebellious person of the whole show. Um, he is in moments Henry Kissinger, right? Like the the guy who is running back, running like several back channel games, competing with each other. Uh, he's he's a little bit like I Claudius, one step ahead of everybody. He's like every. You know what? I was about to stop myself and say, well, that's a bit of a bold yeah, statement. Right. No, it's not a bold statement. He's like every Shakespearean mastermind. Every no, character, he is. Every, he really you know, is. Right? That, like, that is just in control of so much and no one yes. sees it until it's already yeah. too late. He's already yeah, won. exactly. You know, he's like a master. He's like a he's chess master. He's a three-dimensional chess master, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And um, it might have taken me a lot longer to recognize that in watching the episodes and reruns if I hadn't had that moment in 1979 of watching him reject the colon right. R and then show up at the Enterprise and still ask to be allowed right, aboard. Right, right, in, right. In, 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 in a sense of like Batman being the world's greatest detective, to me, Spock is kind of the world's greatest politician. It's, that's a good, or the that's universe's greatest That's a very good way to put it. Again. I never thought about that, but yeah, that makes sense. Right? And, it's, um, and I, I mean, I scribbled that down earlier and, 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 and didn't think I was really going to get to it. But the more, I'm, the more I'm thinking this and the more, you know, there's also that beautiful moment in, in Six when, when after it becomes apparent that, that Klingon race may be dying. And Spock and Kirk have that great showdown. Uh, this, this race that he's pretty much, he and the two of them together have fought against the entire Series, their entire star careers. careers and the entire three seasons and five movies up to that point. And Kirk says, let him die. And Spock says, no. Right. right? Captain, they're dying and we need to do something about it. Like he's just the most humanitarian. Yeah, yeah very much so. Uh, he's he's pretty much what I want. I think Spock informed a lot of political opinions for me too, more than any of the other characters we've discussed and more than most characters in the movies. I would agree, yes. Yeah, uh, in, in TV and novels and anything. I think Spock was, Spock to me is what I keep looking for in in a politician. When I see something happen in the news, if somebody does something really smart, it, it oftentimes makes me think of Spock. Yeah. And watching Thirteen Days, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. You and I both love that movie, and I just I look at that and I see Spock all over it, and I wonder. And I, I'm just pulling this out of my ass right now, but it wouldn't surprise me if that level of diplomacy was somewhere in Gene Roddenberry's mind when he's like, "This is the this is the one character who can be mm-hmm. that." And, and yeah. you know, and it's funny you should say that. The whole uh, Spock is the ultimate intergalactic politician um, the person that we would want representing us and, and representing uh, uh, just things it's kind of funny because I kind of come back to the idea that because he is a an exotic non-human no one can point to him and say oh he's a liberal or he's a conservative right. or he's an independent right. <laughs> you know he's right. no he's just Spock he's just fucking logical <laughs> you know <laughs> right. and yeah. no one can yeah. deny that no one can hurl slanted opinions at the character because he's just the epitome of logic in for lack of a better term human form 
And the, the closest thing I can think of, j- just this morning, I was watching CNN and David Gergen was on, who was an advisor to Nixon and mm-hmm. Ford and Reagan and Clinton, a guy who, like, you know, serves both sides right. of the aisle to serve the country first. Yes. And, like, like, David Gergen is the closest thing we have to Spock uh, now, yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, think. You know, I mean, the, 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 whenever I see him on TV, then whenever I see him interviewed and hear his thoughts, like, this is, this, is a, this is a guy who cares about the entire world the way Spock cares about the entire universe and is very focused and informed and matter of fact about it and uh uh yeah so if 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 spock were were running for any election i think i would vote for him above any of our other characters we've discussed I totally agree yeah I totally agree. <laughs> uh and 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 now that we've actually discussed this you and i as much as we have right here i think he's going to inform Several more political decisions of mine. Like I'm just going to look at everybody and go, "How much? How close are you to right. Spock? You know, like, <laughs> you're off the like, table." <laughs> WWSD. What would Spock do? Right. right? You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Right. So um, that'll about do it for this show. Boy, we sort of squeezed a lot into it. <laughs> uh, so huge thanks to Stacy Lane Wilson. Huge thanks to Ed Wenner. Thanks, Stacy. Um, you know, and uh, huge thanks to you, Jim. For, uh, sitting Thank down you, and, and taking the time to delve into all this stuff, and big time thanks to everybody everybody out there listening. Uh, until next time, I'm Craig Jamison of Cold Cottage Online, and I'm Jim Delaney of the Lunch Movie. And thanks for joining us here at the Movie Sneak. Uh, talk to you again next time up there in those cheap seats. Cheap seats. <laughs> <laughs> For more information on our guest, Stacey Lane Wilson and Edwin Wendler, see the links on our Movie Sneak podcast, Art 19, Blog Talk Radio, and Gull Cottage Online pages. And a reminder that the rights to all film and music clips used in this broadcast are the property of the copyright holders and used here for criticism and educational purposes only. Shh.